In the last episode, I brought us through the complicated world of safety net hospital financing and talked about the disproportionate share hospital payments or dish payments. In this episode, we'll talk about why those payments might be at risk. Several essential programs for Alabama's hospitals expired last Saturday. This is Alabama Congresswoman Terry Sewell addressing the Ways and Means Committee back in 2017. Cuts to DISH programs went into effect, which cost Alabama hospitals $56 million in federal funding next year. What happened was that Congress had missed the deadline to delay cuts to the DISH program, threatening not just Alabama, but hospitals across America. The good news? Soon after this recording, they ruled once again to delay those cuts. But the threat still looms large. Providers in Alabama and across this country cannot continue to cut their way to prosperity or profitability. Today, we'll discuss real policy challenges to safety net hospital funding, and we'll look at policy approaches that could help bolster our safety net. Welcome to A Disproportionate Share, the story of America's safety net hospitals and how we pay for them from health affairs. I'm Michael Shen, a primary care doctor in New York City's public hospital system. Today, the third and final episode in the series, Sustaining Our Safety Net. There's a looming threat to safety net hospitals that has been on the horizon for several years now, and that's the DISH payment cuts. Remember that DISH payments are one of the major Jenga blocks in that unstable tower of supplemental funding that pays for our safety net hospitals. And just to remind you how confusing it can get, remember that Medicare and Medicaid each have their own DISH programs, which are structured differently. Medicaid DISH amounts to more money overall, making up about $14 billion of federal spending in 2020. By comparison, Medicare DISH was about $4 billion. There are plans to cut both DISH streams. But if DISH is so vital for hospitals, why do we plan to cut it? Well, the cuts were written into the Affordable Care Act, or the ACA, back in 2010. Uh, In the Affordable Care Act, the country expanded access to health insurance for more people than in 50 years. This, again, is Matt Siegler, Senior Vice President of Managed Care and Patient Growth in my hospital system, New York City Health and Hospitals. He says ensuring more people through the ACA was a critically important step for U.S. healthcare. And the theory was that with more people being insured, the institutions that typically receive dish payments wouldn't need as many dish payments because more people were insured. The fewer uninsured people there are, the less supplemental funding we might need to pay for them. It sounds logical, but there are issues with the way the policy is structured. I'll bring back Beth Feldpush, health policy expert from America's Essential Hospitals, to explain. The Affordable Care Act had cuts to both Medicare and Medicaid DISH, but the Medicaid and Medicare DISH cuts were structured differently. So the Medicare DISH cuts were structured in a way that the level of the cut was dependent on the national uninsurance rate, which is you know, has some logic behind it. If you have fewer uninsured patients, then you need fewer dollars tied to supporting that unreimbursed care. But Medicaid dish, which would be a larger chunk of money, 
would get cut in really big ways just across the board. The way that the Medicaid dish cuts were worded in the law, though, it wasn't dependent upon anything. They were just put into place at a certain level. And the levels are fairly unsustainable. Just how unsustainable are these cuts? Well, they're pretty high, and they've gotten higher every time they're delayed. In fact, Beth says that we're building up to a pretty frightening cliff of dish cuts. Each year that they come up, I think Congress kind of wisely sees that there is still very much a need for those supplemental payments to help support the safety net system. And so they have continued to just delay and delay and delay the cuts. Now, unfortunately, what's happened in delaying them, there, we have now built up quite a cliff of those cuts. Initially, the first year of cuts in 2014 was going to be $500 million. But now, uh, the next year that the Medicaid dish cuts would go into effect, which would be 2024, the cuts would begin at a level of $8 billion. That is two-thirds of all federal Medicaid DISH dollars will be wiped out in a single year. That's a lot of money that won't be going to hospitals and the patients they serve. But I'm kind of wondering, was the ACA actually successful in offsetting some of the costs for caring for the uninsured? That is, do safety net hospitals still need as much DISH? The short answer, I think, is yes. But I'll explain. The Affordable Care Act did improve the uninsurance rate. By a lot, actually. When I look back at the number, it's really striking. Before the ACA kicked in in 2014, around 17% of Americans had no insurance. That's one in six people. By 2018, that number had dropped by half to about 8.5%. And with policy changes related to the pandemic, it's now 8% in 2022. So what about uncompensated care costs? Are hospitals seeing some relief there? One study saw a 1% drop in uncompensated care as a percentage of hospital operating costs. That single percentage point might mean hundreds of thousands of dollars for a hospital. So in this way, the ACA did result in some relief for hospitals. But there are important caveats that, for me, drive home the point of why these numbers don't actually change the vital need for dish payments for safety net hospitals. First is the fact that I think the ACA's effect on the insurance landscape has largely run its course, at least in Medicaid expansion states, and you can see it in the numbers. The uninsurance rate hasn't really changed that much since 2018, and in the coming years, just as dish cuts are about to hit, I predict we'll see the uninsured rate rise again for the low-income populations that safety nets serve. That's because there are actually a lot of pandemic-related policy changes that protected Medicaid members from losing coverage. Those so-called continuous coverage provisions, they're going to end when the public health emergency ends. So we might see a sharp drop in Medicaid coverage. The second reason I think DISH payments are still essential in full is that they pay for more than just uninsured care. And that you know, kind of goes back to this um, conflating DISH just being a program for the uninsured. That's Linda DeHart, Vice President of Finance at New York City Health and Hospitals, where I work. She says that Congress hasn't recognized the true role of DISH payments. There's this misconception that DISH funding is only used to cover the cost of uninsured patients, when in fact, a lot of what it really covers is loss on Medicaid, because at baseline, Medicaid pays really low rates. 
And that was a health equity issue that I had talked about in the last episode. But the loss on Medicaid patients, you know, is quite significant for high Medicaid hospitals. Um, and that kind of gets overlooked. They're so far, you know, out of whack with what costs are and not still not, you know, pegged to inflation. So I think the, the portion of hospitals need coming from Medicaid rather than uninsured, you know, has really really grown. And part of the reason Medicaid rates are still so low is because around the time of the ACA, we had that financial crisis, and that decimated a lot of state budgets, resulting in massive cuts to Medicaid. Remember, one of the first things states go to cut in a bind is Medicaid. Medicaid rates were since frozen for about 12 years at those significantly reduced levels. And only recently have states started making more investments in Medicaid. In New York State, you know, in the most recent analysis that we've seen on hospital dish calculations, for most safety net hospitals, most of their need is associated with Medicaid patients. You know, maybe 70, 80, 90 percent of their need is coming from Medicaid patients. To summarize, dish payments are still vital, despite the fact that there are fewer uninsured people in this country, because it was never really only about the uninsured population. Dish props up hospitals with significant numbers of Medicaid patients because Medicaid doesn't pay. Even MACPAC writes that DISH is used, quote, more generally to support the financial viability of safety net hospitals. So for the time being, cuts are now slated to come into effect in the year 2024. I wanted to know, what do we think is going to happen? You know, it is perennially brought up during budget reconciliation. Um, I think particularly in a COVID area, I think there's a lot of hesitation to withdraw funding from hospitals in general. And part of the hesitation may also be because states often use DISH funds to meet the needs in other areas. The DISH payment program, as a result of states having a lot of flexibility, is being used to plug a lot of potential financial holes for hospitals. Um, That sort of also contributes to this reliance on the program. And Dr. Chatterjee tells me that her feeling is that dish cuts will continue to be delayed in the future. So I think there are strong arguments by policymakers, legislators, um, people who advocate on behalf of hospitals, basically saying that many hospitals are reliant on dish payments for their financial viability. And I think there's concern that um, withdrawing payments would, you know, have market consequences given their reliance on these payments. So Worst comes to worst, if dish cuts were to happen in 2024. They remain very problematic for us if the cuts ever happen, um, because we continue to serve hundreds of thousands of uninsured patients every year. Uh, There is some hope that these extensions become more permanent or more routine. Um, But it remains on our mind. We we plan in our multi-year budget that the cuts will happen and that we'll have to make adjustments for them, uh, those would be painful adjustments. In my mind, if I had to imagine, it would be laying off staff, which we're currently already short on, and cutting certain essential services, which would strain the safety net and further limit access to people who most need it. So how is Congress approaching the problem of the dish cuts currently? Well. Repeal doesn't look likely yet, and extended delay is more likely. But if the cuts do come, the committee at MACPAC has made recommendations about how they could be restructured. Their recommendation, called the Health Reform Reduction Methodology, 
we'll try to make it so that the cliff is a little less daunting by making the cuts less abrupt than they currently are. It would also address how different states' dish allotments would get cut more fairly. Now, this is something I haven't mentioned yet. The fact that dish allotments are already capped at a state level, and they have been since 1992. So you can imagine that as overall healthcare costs have risen, dish payments haven't really followed suit in nearly three decades. What's more, if you look at how these dish caps are distributed state by state, you'll find that there's no rhyme or reason as to why certain states get more than others. And Congress actually knows these caps make no sense. MACPAC analyses have consistently shown that dish allotments do not correlate with uncompensated care burden or any measure of essential care delivered. To put it simply, current dish caps don't correlate with the intended purpose of the dish program itself. So they recommend that we take into account these unfair dish caps when we eventually cut dish. Now, another point of advocacy is to increase some of the limits on dish at the individual hospital level to give hospitals a little more margin for investment. Something that we are starting to advocate for and, and, and partnering with some other safety net hospitals to advocate for is that that limit um, be allowed to cover more than your loss so that you can build some margin for investment, um, and, you know, creating a rainy day fund and, um, you know, sort of expanding services, improving services, um, because if you're just, you know, barely allowed to cover costs or break even, you know, you're constantly struggling still. Um, so, so we really think it's important that safety net providers be allowed to have some margin um, to invest in their system. At this point, I want to take a step away from DISH. I think we've talked about it enough. And look at some other ways the federal government and states are paying for safety net care. One mechanism I want to talk about involves the health system's movement towards value-based purchasing, or VBP. The point of VBP is to shift how hospitals think about the care they provide, specifically a shift away from volume and toward value. Let me give you an example. Instead of saying, the more heart failure patients your hospital admits, the more money we'll give you, you might instead say, well, if the heart failure patients that you do admit actually have better outcomes than the average hospital, we'll give you a bonus. Now that's exactly what Medicare's Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, or HRRP, did when it was started in 2010. Specifically, HRRP wanted to reduce hospital readmission rates for heart failure, acute heart attacks, and pneumonia. And they did so by financially penalizing hospitals with higher-than-average readmission rates. Over the years, the program has worked. Readmission rates have declined overall across the board. But for safety net hospitals, there was a problem. They were getting penalized at nearly twice the rate as non-safety net hospitals under HRRP and other VBP programs like it. Now, why is that? Not every hospital is starting out at the same baseline. When we look at the patients served by essential hospitals, they have more comorbidities. They have many more social challenges in terms of you know, what their housing environment looks like, their access to healthy foods. But it's really not a reflection of the care that you're providing. It's a reflection of these systemic inequities that are built into that baseline of the measuring system. I know so many patients who work hard to manage their health, but might be more worried about being evicted, 
having to keep multiple jobs, choosing between food on the table and paying for their meds, for example. And as a doctor, I have so little control over these things, but I know they affect their health outcomes. One study even attributed almost 60% of the variation in hospital readmission rates to factors like these. And so, the good news, in 2016, Medicare made changes to ease some penalties towards safety net hospitals through the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, which I think has been a great step forward to start to chip away at those baseline inequities. And so now hospital readmissions are adjusted based on the percentage of dual Medicare Medicaid beneficiaries that a hospital pays for. So instead of being compared to all hospitals, now hospitals are compared to their peer hospitals, those with similar poverty levels in their Medicare patient populations. The use of these peer groups only kicked in in 2019, so the data is limited, but it does suggest that it's working to level the playing field. It's not a bad metric. I mean, it's really a good first step, but it is trying to adjust an inequitable measure on the back end. And since then, the National Quality Forum has advocated for the inclusion of social risk factors in the risk adjustment models for -for pay-for-performance programs. One study even modeled this kind of enhanced risk adjustment and found that readmissions performance of safety net hospitals would improve and that of non-safety nets would worsen, in effect, leveling the playing field. When we take a step back, the mentality of VBP programs ultimately aligns very well with that of safety net systems, and if done right, can really bolster our safety nets. I think overall value-based payment is critically important for safety net hospitals, and I think it's the future of financing for safety net hospitals. It certainly is for us. Uh, we have over 700,000 full-risk lives under management here, um, and it's a critically important way that we stabilize our finances and that we orient the care we deliver around our values and our mission and align our finances with our mission. Because if you think about what safety net institutions do well or should do well, it's to be efficient with limited resources and to employ providers who are really, really committed to a mission and not here to make as much money as humanly possible, right? And both of those things really connect to being successful in value-based payment if the programs are structured right and um, if you work really hard at it. Another mechanism that pays for safety net care is a little more innovative, and it's something I want to talk about, called the Medicaid waiver programs. States also have a lot of flexibility under their Medicaid programs. So there are some exciting programs through state waivers where states can pick a type of service or a patient population where they really want to put more resources into sort of equalizing the the system. And I just want to note, they're called waivers because these programs waive the strict rules around the use of federal dollars so that the money can be used in creative ways. Usually that means paying for things that the traditional health system wouldn't pay for, like housing navigation and other social services. Some systems have used these waivers to create broad health access programs for their uninsured populations. And a lot of these programs, they take place at safety net hospitals. The good side of that is that states can kind of do whatever they want in their Medicaid waiver. The downside of that is that as a state, you have to have the brain power and the resources to cook up what it is you want to do. 
Um, so, you know, the federal government could make waiver templates. So, hey, states, do you want to tackle equity? Here's a way that, you know, we at CMS would approve this if you kind of laid it out this way, what your program is, what the funding needs are, you know, up upfront investment for safety net hospitals. We will approve that quickly. We'll kind of do that thinking for you. And if you have the interest and your state share of the funding, let's do it. So thinking up good ways of promoting this kind of innovation and flexibility in our healthcare system can really pave the way for safety nets to better deliver on their mission. Now, I want to bring us to the conclusion of our series. In mapping out the meaning of the safety net and how we pay for that care, I think we really have to think about going forward, how much do we really value these essential services? And are we willing to put our money behind caring for Americans who are most in need? When I started making this series, one of my main questions was whether my hospital system would ever be at risk of closing, like Hahnemann Hospital did in Philadelphia, for example. In comparing the two, you know, I'm from a huge public hospital system that's deeply committed to its mission, and we have good state and local support. We aren't really likely to close in the same way as a private equity-owned hospital like Hahnemann did. But at the heart of it, we both serve safety net populations. And safety net hospitals, whatever cloth they're cut from, face similar financial challenges, usually living on the edge with razor-thin margins, collecting that Jenga tower of supplemental payments through complicated mechanisms. It seems like a tough existence to me. You've been listening to A Disproportionate Share from Health Affairs. Again, I'm Michael Shen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to executive producer Jeff Byers, senior editor Kathleen Haddad, and my Health Affairs podcast co-fellow Tracy Vasilino. Music was composed and produced by Saul Guanipa. I want to thank everybody whose voices and expertise supported this project. Dr. Paula Chatterjee, Matt Siegler, Linda DeHart, Beth Feldpush, Professor Brianna Clark, Sarah Rosenbaum, and Dr. Mitch Katz.